Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. Achtung, achtung. You are listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk with me, Al Murray, and James Holland, the Second World War podcast for those afflicted um, with an interest in the greatest conflict of all time. And uh, we are, of why are we going to try and talk about the end of the greatest conflict of all time? Not that we'll stop talking as a result of the war ending, obviously. No, that'll never happen. <laughs> That'll never happen. Um, uh, but we're delighted today to be joined by uh, the Curators Professor of Military History at the University of Missouri, John McManus. Um, welcome, John. Thanks for, for joining us. Thanks for having me. In Missouri, it's incredible transatlantic link up via the astonishing technology. It's incredible. Technology's great when it actually works, right? Yeah, absolutely. Now <laughs> it's actually working. And um, you're, I mean, we couldn't, this couldn't be more propitious timing because you are in the middle of a book about Okinawa right now, aren't you? So you are writing. It's actually a broader scope than that. I'm doing a two volume history of uh, the U.S. Army in the Pacific Asia theater, which I think tends to get overlooked. Uh, so the first volume came out last year and it goes through 1943. And I'm writing the second volume now, uh, which, of course, the capstone part of it is Okinawa. So I'm, I'm actually working on that right now. Right, so you're right in the thick of Okinawa yeah. as we speak. Okay. Yeah, that's right. And that's the that's I mean, because we've talked on the podcast, we've talked before about the end of the end of the war, and, and particularly from the perspective of the European theatre, where they're all looking there, they're all looking over their shoulder at what's coming next. And you see that we, we we've been doing a thing lately where we've been watching Band of Brothers with our regular listeners and then, and talking about it. And of course, at the end of Band of Brothers, some of them get their ticket to to go home, and some of them are going to be going going east and obviously right at the top from the the guys at the top to the privates at the bottom are worrying about about the far east and okinawa is the sort of absolute high watermark of the fighting where are you have they have, have they have they cleared the island yet or are we just landing <laughs> no it takes a while for that and they, they are just <laughs> landing and they, and it's you know when you think about it this is sort of the high watermark of um amphibious warfare yeah, I mean, it's the last great invasion that's happened in human history. Now, you're going to have Inchon, you know, five years later in Korea. But yes. that pales in comparison with what Okinawa was. And, of course, the yeah. other thing, too, Okinawa is not just an American operation. Uh, the fleet includes a, a, um, a British fleet as well yeah. uh, that, that adds several more aircraft carriers and battleships. And, of course, this is when the Japanese, uh, not the first time they used the kamikazes, but uh, I think you could say this is the most dangerous time. And so Okinawa yeah. ends up from a U.S. Navy perspective as the deadliest battle in the history of the service, um, mainly because... It's amazing, of isn't it? I mean, it's it's just... I mean, Okinawa is... is, is it's the high watermark, not just for amphibious invasions. It's 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 the high watermark for the kind of awfulness of the Second World War and the kind of the sheer violence of of land, air, and sea warfare. In a way, I mean, you know, what 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 happens in that battle is is just truly horrific, isn't it? And the the loss of civilian it, life of people who just got kind of sort of blown away as a result of this is by some estimates, uh, one out of every three Okinawans loses their lives in this battle. You know, I mean, one in three is insane, isn't it? Oh, it is. God. 
It's yeah. unreal. And so you have that element to this. You have the element of ground combat to the to the final measure, you know, as the Japanese fight to the death. Um, and so Okinawa ends up as this kind of cautionary tale of what we can expect when and if we invade Japan, which yeah. would have been the monster invasion of all time that would have kind of not dwarfed Normandy, but certainly eclipsed it to a great extent. Mm. Um, so there's nobody on the American side who's particularly enthusiastic about that idea of setting foot in, in Japan. <laughs> and you're yeah. right. You know, I was, I was talking about how there's a lot of guys in Europe who have seen the end of that war and are now really kind of worried about redeploying to the Pacific. And a substantial part of the, the U.S. Army was going to be doing that, particularly Hodge's first army. Um, mm. You know, so all the plans are gearing toward that. And, you know, and I always think if that had actually happened, you know, if, if these divisions had redeployed, most of them to, to Japan and been involved in that invasion, which probably, conservatively speaking, would have gone on for about a year and a half or so, um, yeah. the European theater would have been just like a little warm up to them in how they viewed it later. Those, the few who survived, you know, yeah, so yeah, yeah. fortunately that didn't Wait, happen. Uh, uh, but, but, that, but that is overshadowing absolutely everything at this stage isn't it you know uh when when does it um okinawa starts on april fool's day doesn't it 1945 it does um you know so so the technically it's a little earlier than that but uh because right. there were they, the 77th division invaded smaller islands near okinawa as um like anchorages and artillery platforms but the sure. actual invasion itself of the island happens on april 1st so you know you're 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 a matter of kind of six weeks away from the end of um end of the european theater and you can really understand with with just how bloody it's all gotten. There's other sort of warning signs, aren't there? Kind of, you know, the the, the scale of it, the kind of, you know, the, the awful fighting on Peleliu, on Iwo Jima and so on. Yeah. You know, these are all kind of sort of gearing up. Suddenly we're on the kind of Japanese home islands of Okinawa. Everyone's pretty sure that's going to be a pretty tough fight. So it proves. You know, you can see why back in Europe, everyone's kind of getting really twitchy about all this. And you can see why that is informing decisions of kind of, Let's hurry up with the Manhattan Project, you know, the atomic bomb and all the rest of it. You, you, you just see how it all plays out, can't you? And you can see why that decision is made when it is eventually made at the end of July 1945. Right. And even before that, the decision for firebombings, uh, you know, that happens earlier in 1945, which are actually deadlier than the atomic bombings in, in their larger scale. So you've had that. You've got this sort of uh, inter-service competition between the Army Air Forces, which, of course, desperately want their independence. And they think one way to do that is to, to, you know, take the lead role in bringing Japan to its knees through strategic bombing. The Navy wants to uh, blockade and cordon off Japan, and has already sort of done that with its subs. But now the the air types want to get in there and bombard Japan that way. Um, and you know, no one wants to admit it's the Army and the Marine Corps. They're really going to have to play the the true bloody role if we ever do invade. Um, you know, so. It's uh, it, it is Okinawa is this sort of capstone cautionary tale of what this is going to mean if you really do invade. Um, and there's, you know, obviously serious plans in the works for this to happen. Um, you know, so. what's the what's the scale of the Okinawa invasion? then? Because I mean, I, I, I you know, I, I know our listeners, I know they're less familiar with with the Pacific. I know they are. And I, and I, I know that because I am as well. So what's the what, how many divisions are we looking at? What's the you know, mm-hmm. because if you compare it to Overlord, which is this this, you know, enormous 70 mile front and, uh, and all this sort of thing. What's the scale? Because after all, the, a home island, the South Island is going to have to be upscaled considerably, isn't it? Because after all, the Marine U.S. Marine Corps have been have been fighting a more contained 
you know, because these islands are only so big and the numbers are only so large. It's a it's a more contained thing. It's not it's not on the scale of the European war, at least not at least not yet. So what is the scale at Okinawa? Not for the Marine Corps, but for the army. Um, the Marine yeah. Corps mobilizes a full, you know, at most six divisions during the war. The army has 21 plus all sorts of attachments that probably bring yeah. four or five more division equivalents into the into the party throughout the Pacific Asia theater. And the Philippines yeah. is really where you see the Philippines, where you're starting to see uh, amphibious invasions begin to, to be on par with Normandy. Now, Okinawa, yeah. it's about 1,300 ships. It's four divisions that invade on the day of the invasion, April 1st. So it's yep. two Marine divisions and two Army divisions side by yep. side. and the, But you have uh, three other divisions in floating reserve. Second Marine Division, the uh, the Army 77th Infantry Division, the Army's 27th. Plus, you have another one that's at New Caledonia, uh, just sort of cooling its heels, waiting in case it's needed. Fortunately, it never was, even as bad as things got. So it's a it's a pretty major invasion. Um, no, that's you know. I mean that's that's a that's a <laughs> massive scale, isn't it? Really, it really uh, is. Yeah, God. Yeah, and <laughs> in terms of naval hardware, it's um, it's really you know capital ship hardware. I think in some ways it exceeds Normandy, especially when you throw the carriers into the mix. You've got forty aircraft carriers that are involved in that's this. That's amazing. This battle. <laughs> 40 aircraft carriers. Can you imagine yeah. that? I mean, 40 of them. Uh, yeah. I mean, and, and of course, a number of them, probably about, I, I I could be wrong, but I think at least a dozen are fleet carriers. And, you know, those are major capital ships. Yeah. You know, like the Essex and the Bunker Hill and, and this kind of thing. Yeah, so. they're just ginormous, aren't they? By kind of 1945. Yeah, they really are. But, but John, just to sort of, just to rewind a little bit, I mean, one of the things I think is really interesting is is that there is this sort of th- this this feeling that kind of boots on the ground kind of equates to, to strategic importance, and it's something that I just do not buy at all under any circumstances, you know. And you go back to the uh, um, the Pacific Theater and the start of it, and obviously the Arcadia Conference in December 1941, following Pearl Harbor, where it is agreed that you know both the British and the Americans agree that that kind of you know defeating Nazi Germany is the first priority but by no means is the Pacific going to be kind of you know nothing happening I mean it's not going to get it's not going to get the commitment of the European theatre but it's still going to get a heck of a lot of commitment and I think you know although on somewhere like Guadalcanal or whatever it might be you know you're not getting hundreds of thousands of troops being landing but what you are getting is a vast material um, commitment there because Everything has got to be carried across the sea, you know, or flown in, you know, tens of thousands of miles, you know, and it's all going to be brought there. And, and the, the, you know, what always just staggers me is is the scale of logistical commitment in the Pacific is just amazing. And once once Midway has been won and once the battle has started to turn in favour of the United States in Guadalcanal, down in the Solomon Islands, you know, which are kind of, uh, if you know, who don't know, it's kind of sort of north, uh, northeast of of Australia, I suppose, is the kind of best way to describe it. You know, the outcome has is is set in stone. I mean, that you know, it's going to end in failure for Japan, but to get to that point is completely unknown. You know, w- when they will win, that is the great unknown. You know, how long it's going to take, how much, how many lives are going to be lost, how much commitment it's going to take to do that. That is the big unknown. 
and to get to that point from kind of you know the start of 1943 when um, Guadalcanal is finally defeated in February, you know, it's finally captured completely in February 1943, through to you know two uh, two years later, you're on Okinawa, just a little bit over two years later. I mean, that's going some, isn't it? I mean, that's that's a hell of a speedy advance, really, over such an enormous scale. And there's a lot of factors in play. One. Um, there is an, an enormous, bordering on almost violent disagreement within the Americans themselves about the Germany First strategy. Uh, the MacArthur wing is adamantly opposed to it. Uh, the Stillwell wing that's in you know, China and the China lobby is adamantly opposed to this. And so what this leads to is a kind of Roosevelt administration compromise in which when you really look at the resources apportion from an American perspective, like in early 1943, to uh, Europe slash North Africa and Guadalcanal and New Guinea, um, it's more or less equal. And of course, there's always more naval resources going, you know, to the Pacific. Uh, yeah. The other thing too that I think Guadalcanal um, really needs to be understood in a larger context. Uh, that especially from a Japanese point of view, it's a battle that's part of the same campaign that includes New Guinea too. And that's one of the reasons why the Japanese lose is they're spread thin. Uh, their resources go into Guadalcanal and go into Papua New Guinea, where MacArthur's uh, Australian and U.S. troops are putting pressure on them there, especially the Battle of Buna, which is, uh, I think, really overlooked because this is the first American ground victory of World War II under Lieutenant General Robert Eichelberger, and it is so strategically important because from that point forward, uh, the Allies are going to have the initiative to begin to leapfrog across New Guinea. Okay, so once we've done that, now it really becomes like all wars a question of will um you know mm -hmm. because the japanese are going to fight like hell so do we have the will now to fight our way all the way uh across the pacific and island hopping and across new guinea to go back to the philippines which of course is macarthur's passion um so the the, the war is growing in scale even as our commitment to europe is growing too so you always have this tension there of resources going one way or the other, and MacArthur is just fighting like a wildcat. I mean, <laughs> I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not exaggerating. I mean, constantly within the, 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 you know, you look at his cables back and forth with Marshall and all this, and he's just constantly like, I'm not getting resources, and I ought to be getting this, and I ought to be getting that. And it's so wrongheaded, this European thing. And, and he's, you know, what he's really angry about, and this is interesting in, in light of the later Cold War, he's really angry that resources are going to Soviet Russia rather than his guys initially in the Philippines and of course later in Australia and New Guinea. And that, I, I just, that to me opens your eyes a little bit and you, you understand why they're doing it at the time, but, but it's also something that, that partisan critics can seize upon later. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, so, I mean, after all, the naval effort is of a different, the British naval effort, for instance, after all, we, we, the, the UK has has the biggest fleet in the world at the start of the war. It has imperial bases all over the war. You know the Singapore base. It's 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 geared for a different kind of and the Mediterranean, of course, is its sphere of influence. It's geared for a different type of naval war. The US Navy in the Pacific is having to do everything at vast range from first principles, isn't it? So because one of the one of the things that's interesting is when the British Navy do come to the Pacific in 1945, one of the criticisms is that their ships don't have the range that American ships have, do they? That they that they're they're just not they're not cut out for the sort of the, the, the great the great lengths that they that, that are uh, to keep up with American fleets. In fact, they just can't do it. They haven't got the they haven't got the, that mindset. So I think it's I think that's really interesting that 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 the, the, there's a different way of war going on. And one of the things, of course, that does happen is that 
um, in the planning for the, the invasion of Japan, there's no the, the Americans are not keen on the British being involved at, at all, are they? In fact, they're, they're not involved. And the Canadian, there's Canadian soldiers being trained and equipped as Ameri- on the American style rather than the British style. And so what's going on there? Why? 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 <laughs> Who's who's that? Is that is that is that uh, MacArthur again? Who's saying now we just elbow the Brits out of this? We're not interested. There's a lot of answers to that question. And uh, the first part, the um, the naval operations in the vast yeah. Pacific, the U.S. Navy had become really good at logistics. It was a logistic yeah. revolution. And really, from from my point of view as a as more of an army historian, the army had become incredibly good at this too. With, with land, island, and some now level of littoral operations, if we're looking yep. at Burma and China and all that. But the, the Navy had become very good at at-sea uh, at refueling and at-sea replenishment of everything you needed, to the point where uh, Spruance's fifth fleet, uh, which confusingly is also the same fleet as Halsey's third fleet, they just would hand off who was in charge and they'd rename the fleet as to who was in charge but they're at sea just constantly almost in 1944 and 45 because we can do this now now when we're talking about the invasion of japan what had been finally sort of well, well bickered over and finally agreed upon by uh, oh like june 1945 or so yeah. is that macarthur would command all army forces all ground operations and so then macarthur was saying i i don't want the british involved um, simple as that. <laughs> MacArthur was very, I, I think, I won't say cold-hearted, but you know, when you really look at the earlier part of the war, um, the Australians do a lot of the heavy lifting in 1942 and 43 in terms of a lot of things, but ground yeah. operations being one of them. Yeah. And once they were not as useful to him and the Americans could move on to the Philippines, he was like, okay, go babysit the Bokenville jungle and the New Guinea jungle and babysit yeah. the he's there and we're moving on. And so he doesn't really want a multiple alliance force that's going to actually invade Japan. He wants that to be a U.S. Army force. It's hard enough for him to incorporate the Marines, to be honest with you. Yeah. But why is that? Where, is, is that just, yeah, what's just that pure come, agoraphobia or is that or is that just, just nationalistic pride or is it just, you know, he knows what he knows because he knows how these guys, you know, he knows his American troops backwards. But but you've got all this kind of hassle of kind of slightly different ways of doing things. I mean, is it is it? are the practical reasons or is it more kind of emotional i think in macarthur's case it's a little bit more emotional of course you know he had served in world war one he had not formed a particularly high opinion of uh, the british officers with whom he had worked he was macarthur was the kind of guy who would form a, a quick and negative opinion you know until he was dissuaded from it and the example i would give you in the early part of the war he thought the u.s navy was useless because he thought they had betrayed him in the philippines now, once he consummates a very good partnership with uh, Halsey, his, his attitude completely changes. Same thing with the Army Air Forces and all that. So I, I won't say that MacArthur was like nationalistic and jingoistic and anglophobic, but he also had a kind of a, a negative opinion of uh, British officers and their knowledge of island warfare and all that. He just thought it's going to be more trouble than it's worth. I think if he have actually say, worked with somebody like Slim or somebody like that, then that would have completely changed his attitude because you do see, for to his credit, he's willing to revise his opinion. And, it, you know, he's had tension with the Marine Corps and is eventually they're going to get to the point of saying, oh, we'll just put the Marine units under Nimitz and, you know, we won't have them under MacArthur. And MacArthur's fine with that. Uh, he criticizes Buckner, the uh, the 10th Army commander who, who commands all ground forces at Okinawa, who's an Army general, 
commanding both Marines and soldiers. He criticizes him for kind of selling out to the Navy and Marine Corps, but really all Buckner's doing is putting together productive relationships and inter-service harmony, which is so important. We're going to take a break right now. We're talking to John McManus. We'll see you in a tick. Welcome back to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. We're talking to John McManus about the Pacific campaign and learning an awful lot. Listen, John, I've got I've got something for you. Could you just do for those for those listeners and particularly British listeners, I guess, who who aren't 100 percent familiar with the form that the Pacific War took? Could you do kind of two minutes on the main event of what happened in the Pacific War? Marshall used to make his officers explain the Civil War in four minutes or something. So hopefully I can get this done. But um, I mean, obviously, as you know, the the Japanese have decided that they've got to have resources. And what that really means is today's Indonesia, what was the Dutch Indies, East Indies, they need all that oil, tin, rubber and all that. They're already involved in China. So basically, Japan is fighting a two front war, just like Germany is, you know, once they uh, once Japan has attacked the U.S., Britain and, and the Dutch. Um, so, you know, the, the Pacific War takes on the nature of island warfare. Of It has a reputation of being a, um, a naval war, and it, of course, is that. But it's a ground war, too, in the sense of taking key platforms for air power. And when you ask yourself, okay, why was this place invaded? If you're ever studying the Pacific War, almost always the answer is to get an airfield so that then we can project our air power. And of course, planes can be deadly to ships by this point in time. And so the war revolves around those new military realities. Which and is why Guadalcanal is 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 the, the seat of fighting that it is, because that within the Solomon Islands, that's the only place you can put an airfield. Right, and a, and a good airfield. And the Japanese are in the process of building one there in you know July 1942. And the, the Americans feel that the Japanese do that, that's going to sever the sea lanes to Australia. And you just can't, you can't have that. Australia is the England, uh, you know, in terms of basing in 1942 and 1943. Um, about a million Americans passed through Australia at some point during World War II or a station there. And I really think that's overlooked. I, I think it's a fascinating story, to be honest with you. So, um, you know, so Guadalcanal evolves from that. And of course, as part of the, the subplot to the same story, um, you know, Papua New Guinea, the fight there over Port Moresby is quite similar because Port Moresby would be the, the airfield and, and sea base that the Japanese could use to attack Australia's north coast and control those waters and whatever. So we just simply can't let that happen. And so uh, the war kind of progresses from there to, to just needing the next base, the next part of it. And so a lot of what the um, Pacific War revolves around is should we invade this place or not? And, you know, sometimes the answer is they get it right, and sometimes they don't. Most infamously, they don't at Peleliu, of course, uh, in, in September 1944. Because sometimes they're just, they're, just, they're just going, okay, that island is occupied by the Japanese, but you know what? We're just going to skip over it. We're just going to isolate it, and we're just going to leave it. So it's, a, it's a, certainly a war of, of air power and sea power, but consummated by ground power. Uh, because you don't really control anything until you control it on the ground quite often. And, uh, you know, in terms, especially in terms of your logistics and your staging, it's really incredible what engineers are able to do, army engineers in particular, uh, you know, with just turning these wilderness places into cities, into bases. Uh, Hollandia is a really good example on the northern coast of New Guinea. It's a nothing place. And, uh, you know, they invade in April 1944, 
And within about a three to five month period, I mean, this is a major logistical base that's almost on par with what you see in portions of the Mediterranean and England and whatever. And But I would say amid much more challenging circumstances, uh, terrible places to fight. No infrastructure, disease is rife. You know, I mean, you know, like New Guinea, practically look at the place and you have malaria, you know. Um, <laughs> it's yeah. just awful. Dengue it's fever. Awful. <laughs> that too they they just they discover a new form of scrub typhus uh that has a five fatality rate and and um so they they realize oh it's coming from these little mites that's on the tropical grass that, that cuts our guys in the arms as they walk by and you know so at the, in 1943 you know when, when macarthur is doing what are fairly small scale operations in new guinea we are losing um five soldiers to malaria for every one in combat to the japanese that stage and this is with modern medicine and you know malaria is usually not deadly but still the average guy who goes down with malaria is in the hospital about 20 to 25 days or so so you're losing a lot of manpower to this and yep. even when back it recurs usually um so I, I think the pacific war in a way is an interspecies war too because now we're at war against the insects um they're they're <laughs> we've got these malariologists and, and and malaria control teams that are like trying to flame out mosquito breeding areas um they're they're putting out there what's called bug bombs it's this noxious you know insecticide that had to be so toxic to the soldiers and it's just like they're bombing these areas and but it, you know ultimately the, the solution was pharmaceutical um they're yeah, giving everybody atabrine which is why the, the white soldiers end up with this kind of yellowish skin and uh, so you could have you could always pick out a Pacific theater veteran in those days uh, among white soldiers because they had that kind of yellowish complexion that came from taking Atabrine. God, it's absolutely amazing. I mean, I mean, I've got to say in Burma in the summer of 1943, it was, um, you know, sort of late summer of 1943, it was, it was one battlefield casualty to every 120 malaria. Yeah. Of like medieval warfare. I mean, it, yeah. I mean, it was just absolutely ridiculous. And obviously, you know, things had to change and they, they managed to sort them out you know, pretty quick, quick order to be, to be fair, but with much the same kind of treatment, you know, lots of malaria tablets, making it compulsory to take them, buttoning down your shirts, all that kind of stuff. I mean, yep. you know, basic things, but, but no baths after dark. That's yeah. The, no uh, baths after yeah. dark. Exactly. Yeah. Now there's this process of Island hopping. There's this colossal logistical effort. And then of course, as the war ends, like you say, that the, the different the different wings of the American effort are, are, com are literally competing with each other to deliver the blow that that, that ends the war. But what preparations are underway for a for a for a South Island invasion? What's actually going on, or is it all sort of because uh, because if you if, if you, I mean it's it's interesting how we've since digested the use of the atomic bombs in in, in not just not just in the history but in you know in popular public debate. You know, was there any need? And if you if 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 you're talking, if you're looking at Okinawa, you can see perfectly well why it was on the table as an option, yeah. and and further firebombing and further to further area bombing or strategic bombing, whatever you want to call it. Um, you can see why those options are on the table. But what's what's what what's the army doing? I mean, are they are they amassing every landing getting their hands on every landing craft in the world? And there's stuff being shifted from the Western theater of operations and all that sort of thing. Is that what's going on? Yes, that's exactly what's going on. What, and and it's, a lot of it is centering on the Philippines, where fighting is still going on in the summer of 1945, especially in the northern hills of Luzon. But what, at this point, um, MacArthur's headquarters is planning for two major phase invasions of Japan. 
um, Operation Olympic uh, to invade Kyushu in November 1945 with uh, Kruger's 6th Army, General Walter Kruger. And then the sort of capstone operation is going to be Operation Cornet in March 1946 with two American armies. Robert Eichelberger's 8th Army will have the, the lead role there. And he's really, he's, the, in my view, the best American commander in this war that you'd never heard of. Um, and, and MacArthur kind of wanted it that way. Um, and then you're going to have 10th Army, which had fought, uh, you know, obviously in Okinawa and was under Buckner. Buckner is unfortunately killed at the end of the Battle of Okinawa. Uh, so Joe Stilwell, our old friend from, from China, is going to get 10th Army at that point, and he's probably going to lead it in. Now, you also have this little subplot going on of 1st Army under Courtney Hodges that's been transferred from Europe. Um, but MacArthur didn't want a lot of the commanders from Europe. Uh, he was willing to deal with Hodges and, uh, I think, significantly, too, Matt Ridgway, who he had – everybody in the Army had such a high opinion. Everybody wanted Ridgway. To was 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 um, was, uh, was Lightning Joe Collins not considered? Because, you know, obviously he's got form. He didn't He didn't want Collins. Um, Collins he would have thought of as a, as a corps commander who had fought in Nimitz's theater at Guadalcanal. And Collins, of course, a fine commander and one of the few who had, who had led at a senior level in both Europe and the Pacific. Uh, but he, he didn't he didn't want – any of them. He didn't want Patton, and it's no aspersion of Patton. Patton desperately wanted in the war because he's Patton, but you know, he just didn't want to deal with other personalities who had carved out their own enclaves. Uh, so it's not that he just doesn't want the Brits. He just doesn't, doesn't want a lot of Americans as well. Right. He wants his hand-picked people. By now, certainly, he's worked a long time with Kruger and Eichelberger and has formed good partnerships with them. He thinks very highly of them, and, and I think with good reason. He, he knows Stillwell and has known him for years and respects him. Uh, so he can live with Stillwell. He didn't want Buckner um, because he didn't have a very high opinion of Buckner, partially, I think, unfairly, because he thought, well, Buckner sold out to the Navy. And, you know, so uh, MacArthur's constantly butting heads with Nimitz. And, of course, that's, you know, the Army and the Navy make this kind of compromise, part of the theater under Nimitz, part under MacArthur. And I've always really admired Nimitz for his forbearance and his indulgence of MacArthur, who's, who acts sometimes like an adolescent toward him, in my view. And it- so, so, what you've, so what you've not got in this theatre is, is a sort of Ike figure who's the, sat atop it, who's, who's managing these people, which is the, which is the thing they... Because, I mean, you're almost describing, like, the Navy and the Army, it almost feels like the British and the Americans, and what you need is someone sat above to be the, the political, um, you know, uh, manager... Of, of this situation and, 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 and that's that's how you keep these two things on track it almost it almost sounds like that because we I mean we've talked a lot about Montgomery you know who who and how in the end I don't care if he's an annoying prig I think he does a good job mm-hmm. and, and you know MacArthur's personality we, we, what we're having to do here is hack our way past his personality if the best way to win the war in the Pacific have him have the people mm-hmm. he wants and obviously his personality requires as you say great forbearance on Nimitz's part that's kind of interesting that Nimitz is prepared to go all right I'll I'll, I'll, I'll suck this up I'll let that go I'll 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 let you I'll, I'll cope with you um being being like you know hard hard to deal with because after all I mean you know, there's a war on, isn't there? Who cares? Who cares if MacArthur's um, a terrible prick? <laughs> For want of a better way of putting it. Right. And, and Nimitz certainly looks at it that way. Nimitz is, I don't <laughs> know what would anger him. He's the most even-tempered, uh, eye-on-the-prize guy that you'll ever know. I mean, it's, I think it's amazing. And so as far he as... He is the- amazing, isn't he? I mean, he's an incredible commander. And he gets all those three levels of war, and he's just—he's—he's he's the complete commander, really. He is, and uh, he always seems to have the bigger picture vision. He's—he's uh, 
He's even-tempered. He's thoughtful. It doesn't mean he didn't make mistakes. Pelelu is an example of, of a bad call on his part, but he learned from his mistakes. He, he just He's the kind of person you exactly want in charge because he's so stable and he's so damn bright. Um, and he knows how to handle MacArthur too. And, um, and, and MacArthur, I think, understood that intrinsically as well and came to respect him over the course of the war. Uh, but you needed Washington policymakers to keep these two, uh, to, to carve out the enclaves, I guess, between the two. And, and that tended to be George Marshall and Ernie King, um, who, who ended up forging a very productive relationship together. So that what's different about the Pacific, and one of the reasons that makes it a little harder and, and not always as fun to study, there isn't one guy we can point to saying he's in charge of the whole thing like Ike is in Europe. It's really neat to look at that, and you can understand, okay, that everything's coming from him. The thing about the Pacific, there isn't necessarily one person in charge. Um, so it's it's a kind of compromise of responsibility and in, in areas and resources among various personalities. Of course, uh, last priority tends to go to China, Burma, India theater. Um, you know, So this is what Stilwell has in 1942 to 1944. Then he is succeeded by Al Wiedemeyer. And why? Well, Stilwell just could not get along with Chiang Kai-shek. Uh, in part because Stilwell was so honest that he just couldn't deal with the corruption or any, 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 he didn't keep his opinions to himself because he was one of these preternaturally honest people about everything, you know, so he had no filter in that regard, but, uh, but he's also quite a caustic character, isn't he? I mean, that's why it's called Vinegar Joe yeah, and, and, and yeah, you know, he's, he's, he's tricky, isn't he? I mean, it's fair to say, yeah. I mean, he, he gets on well with Mountbatten, but he's, but he's, you know, he's uh, the Supreme Allied Commander, Southeast Asia Command, but he's, but he is a tricky character, and um, you know, dealing with the Chinese is tricky. I mean, it just Absolutely. is. Absolutely, you know, it's interesting because and still is, in fact, <laughs> right, exactly. So Wiedemeyer comes in, and he, you know, he thinks he has all these new ideas, and it's almost exactly what Stillwell had wanted to do before. It's just that Wiedemeyer had better diplomatic skills. Uh, of course, by the time Wiedemeyer comes into play, you could say it's too little, too late. You know, so you have that, and then you have this division of the theater between MacArthur and Nimitz. Um, Nimitz has a lot of the, the ocean, you know, and the, the islands of the, the central Pacific and North and all that, uh, MacArthur's big thing is getting back to the Philippines. And I, I tend to think that's a really overlooked part of the Pacific war too, because from an American standpoint, that's the nexus of the whole war. That's where we have most of our casualties. That's where most of the fighting happens. Um, and that is MacArthur. And that's what starts it all off in, in any way, isn't it? I mean, it's, it's, it's not just Pearl Harbor. It's, it's the invasion of the Japanese invasion of the Philippines. Which is this this, this great humiliation for, for 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 MacArthur and you know yep. that is the big U.S. base in that theater and, and an enormous battle campaign two campaigns forty one and forty two and forty four and forty five and the latter um, by the time so this is one of the things that, that I make that I talk about in this this second book um, and I, I find it so amusing because MacArthur spent so much of the war caterwauling and complaining about how he wasn't getting resources and things are going to Europe and other people. And there were people in Washington sabotaging him and all this. And yet by the time he invades the Philippines in the fall of 44, and then, um, you know, later on Luzon in 1945, he has the second largest American ground army on the planet, uh, behind only Eisenhower. <laughs> and it's, and there's nobody else even close. So, you know, there's, there's plenty of soldiers fighting under Nimitz, but, Nowhere near as many as what MacArthur is going to control, and not to mention the naval assets he's got at his disposal. I mean, he has, you know, the 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 third fleet there with him under Halsey. I mean, he's got the seventh fleet under Kincaid. I mean, 
it's you know so it's just really kind of funny but i also think it's sad in a way because i think that even especially even in this country we tend to overlook um the philippines which is the core of the entire fighting if we're looking at where the fighting actually happened and where we took our casualties and it's also a unique army in american history and that initially in 41 42 it's a colonial army almost on the british you got about 20 to 25 percent americans and then mostly locals um you know but and the other thing too is a lot of times you'll hear this term the fall of the philippines and i would argue the japanese never really controlled the philippines they had some bases they had certainly to control the sea lanes and all that, but they did not control the population in any way, shape or form. Um, they were plagued by guerrilla war and the guerrillas were a big part of why the Philippines are eventually liberated. And that has, you know, uh, implications for the post-war world of what the Philippines are to be and what the American. Because Well, they're, they're, they're not in, they're, obviously they're not an American colony because America doesn't do colonies. What, what are they yeah. called at the time there? Uh, because you're not an imperial parrot or America. But, um, what, what's, <laughs> what, what, what's, what's the status of the Philippines at the time? I can't remember. It's got a sort of technical name that means not a colony. Honestly, They were a commonwealth, but they were about to get their independence because the, the, uh, the Senate had passed what was called the Tidings McDuffie Act in 1934. Yeah saying, Philippines, you're getting independence in 1946. So, you know, we had decided at that point, we don't want the colony any there anymore, but we'll still have bases there, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. So yeah. in the meantime, obviously, the war happens and the Japanese invade. You know, by the way, the the, uh, the Philippines, the, its president, uh, Manuel Kazan, had initially hoped that the war wouldn't come to the Philippines, that if he just got independence early and declared neutrality, the Japanese wouldn't want to mess with them. And in that, he was extraordinarily naive. Gosh, no, 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 no. That's quite wrong. But, yeah. but, but, John, just go back to the back to the guerrillas. I mean, the, the the guerrilla campaign in the Philippines is that has got to be the least known guerrilla campaign in the whole of the Second World War. I mean, no one knows yeah. about that, do they? And yet, so, so, what, what, what's the what's the commitment by Philippine guerrillas? And and what it you you said it has a big impact, but but in kind of what way? It's this. this of course, the Philippines by geography is going to be diffuse with all these different dialects, all these different cultural realities, you know, you name it. So you have all these sort of grassroots guerrilla organizations that have sprouted up among the various islands that have been then helped and fostered along by some Americans who escaped the Japanese in 1942, uh, or who are going to be filtered in later at with MacArthur's behest. MacArthur's headquarters is, is carrying on uh, resupply operations, usually with submarines and whatever, uh, to keep the guerrillas going. Uh, so part of it is the, the sort of local politics, part of it is hatred of the Japanese, part of it is Americans working with them. So it's really, you know, if you're an American involved in this, your role is really quite similar to later special forces. Um, you know, so you're, you're operating it with insurgencies and almost like uh, locals who you're mobilizing against a, a larger occupying power here. Uh, so in that sense, too, it's kind of similar to the resistance movements in Europe, I suppose, too, where you have OSS teams and SOE working with them or whatever. Um, so you, you've got this by 1944. Um, these guerrilla formations are, have been divided in, by MacArthur's headquarters into bona fide divisions and corps, um, and they have military districts. And so the Japanese are just plagued with this. And presumably, John, one of the reasons why um, the, the Filipinos are so against the Japanese is because of Japanese brutality and the way they've been treated. I was just going to say, they're, they're surely not doing themselves any favours uh, with the locals, are they? Which is, which is again, uh, you know, again, the signature of 
of of German occupations in in especially in Eastern Europe, where especially in Eastern Europe where there's an opportunity to liberate um, people from the Soviet Union, and the Germans don't well, take that opportunity. Well, uh, sure. Quite qu- quite the opposite. So it's a similar thing happening in in the Philippines. Yeah, and there's, there's a there's a different um, component to it than you see in Europe. In that, of course. You had white colonialists who had been there and were going to be yeah. popular with a lot of people. And so the Japanese had a great opportunity. One of the things that I, that I found in my research here that I, that I think is so fascinating because I've got a lot of the Japanese perspective, especially the soldiers perspective. And um, these are guys who are very idealistic about going to war to liberate um, non-whites from white colonialists. And especially yeah. in the Philippines. And so some of them come into the Philippines with these great ideals about how they're liberating these guys from the terrible Americans. They get to the Philippines and they realize the population is already really quite pro-American, most of it. Even those who have fought the Americans earlier in their lives, like Kazan, um, <laughs> you know, in the Philippine-American War, yeah. which, you know, is a colonial war. Um, even they are pretty pro-American. And so and then the guerrillas brought up. And so the Japanese get to the point where they're like, you know what? screw these people let's just kill them all i mean i'm serious you see this in diaries and it's it's horrifying because they're like we have come to to liberate these people and they don't understand it and of course the japanese have really come as new colonizers um but they don't quite get that and so they're really angry about this by the time macarthur's armies come back in 44 and 45 um, that the Japanese are just to the point of like we're fighting against everybody and and you know this this sort of suicidal mentality of let's take as many Filipinos as we can with us the Bataan Death March infamous um, you know 600 Americans die on that about 10,000 Filipinos die whatever the Americans are getting the Filipinos are getting it worse later on of course the Battle of Manila which is one of the great tragedies February March 1945 some 100,000 residents of Manila are killed not entirely by the Japanese there's American firepower involved too but the majority done by Japanese atrocities that are planned uh, you know that they're just going to kill them in this garrison is just fighting to death and they're going to kill people before they die it's it's horrible so when we're commemorating the uh, 75th anniversary of the end of the war really we should be also remembering all those those other little sort of places that haven't been at the forefront of the narrative and and you know commemorating all the filipinos and all the other indigenous people all around there who all kind of you know were sacrificed in their tens of thousands if not hundreds of thousands i mean it's often forgotten that kind of 252,000 burmese were killed in the second world war and then this all feeds into post-war post-colonial fallout as well doesn't it so so a great part of the picture of again often the focus is on the cold war in the in the west and 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 how the you know how europe is is sort of divvied up but actually the 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 post-war effects in the in the in the Southeast Asia and then in the Pacific, they're 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 enormous, aren't they? And it's oh. the, the end. You've got the end of the, all the all the empires are are over. It's the end of empire, full stop. And and then new communist ones resurgent. So I mean, it's I mean, it, you know, I mean, as ever, the thing the thing is is that you have these days called Victory in Europe Day and Victory in Japan Day, but they're, they're if anything, they're the start of. They're not the end of anything at all. They're the start of a whole load of new things. Precisely. It's the start of new conflicts. And the Philippines yeah. are a good example. You know, us, the World War II historians, we tend to overlook uh, what's sometimes happening after is even more significant. So in the Philippines, mm. um, there's a communist insurgency run called the Hooks, primarily in Luzon, who are very close to taking over the archipelago in the mid-1950s. So can you imagine that? 
after yeah. all the oh. sacrifices that we as Americans would have made in order to get to, that it would have fallen to communism in the heart of the Cold War. And yeah. uh, Ramon Matsaisai, <laughs> who, by the way, is a former guerrilla leader during the war, yeah. is really yeah. the key figure alongside Edward Lansdale and other Americans who are now helping to run this counterinsurgency there. You know, so right there, I think that's an example. And in the Philippines, too, in the long term, you've all heard of Ferdinand Marcos. Of course, he's yeah. a guerrilla leader, too. And so it's very good politics for many Filipinos after the war to show how they resisted the Japanese. And, all this. and this, of course, is notably like France or Italy. Um, you know, it's very similar to Europe in, in that respect yep. of political repercussions later on. Uh, um, so all of that, you know, is, it's almost like biting off more than you can chew in terms of covering in a World War II. It's really a much longer kind of epical story in a lot of these places, yeah. not to mention, of course, Vietnam. In Korea yeah. and what happens in, in those countries too. And then there we go back to China as the whole origins of this. If Chiang Kai-shek does not lose the Chinese Civil War, you're not going to have wars in Korea and Vietnam. And so yeah. I, I would argue, and I do argue in, the, in these books, that uh, really the Pacific Asia War is much more indicative of what's to come than is the European War, at least from an American perspective. That, it, that with the exception of Somalia, uh, Grenada, all of our wars ever since then have been fought somewhere on the Asian continent. Um, and that is not an Yeah, accident. it's not interesting. It is not interesting. Fascinating. Wow. Well, thank you so much, John. I mean, as ever, I mean, we always say this, but, you know, we could we could talk for hours. You've opened, you've, we've only, we've opened the can of worms, but only two or three worms have got out. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's just so many different, but what I, what I love about the, the getting people like yourself on, John, on this podcast is suddenly you get these totally different perspectives these these fresh insights and perspectives on something and uh it's 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 just it's great to chat so thank you so much for coming on thanks for having thank me. you so much john magnificent stuff thank you yeah thanks guys i appreciate it <laughs>